section fourteen of brain and personality this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by avai in december two thousand twenty brain and personality or the physical relations of the brain to the mind by william hannah thompson the significance of sleep part one no consideration of the physical relations of the brain to the mind would be complete without including the separation of the one from the other which occurs in sleep regarded simply as a phenomenon sleep has been well termed the great mystery of life we should not allow the term mystery however to become as is done by some persons a signal for a cessation of all further discussion from its own nature a true mystery instead of ending discussion calls for more of it because a mystery is always something about which we know a good deal or else it would be no mystery if we know nothing about the subject it is not a mystery to us whatever else it may be thus i have heard a fourth dimension of space spoken of but as i know nothing of such a dimension and have not found any one who does it can be no mystery to me what constitutes a mystery is the unknown which is certainly connected with the known a mystery therefore is unfinished knowledge rather than complete ignorance whether we can know the rest or not makes no difference it then would remain only an unsolved mystery but in no sense the less a mystery when we are convinced from what we know about it that there is more still to know the history of science is a record of many a long-standing mystery finally solved meantime the process which science follows in dealing with mysteries is always the same first begin by finding out all you know on the subject do this as thoroughly as possible then be sure that you do not pass to the consideration of the unknown except along lines definitely connected with that which is certainly known in all essentials this process corresponds to that of the astronomer who is trying to find out his distance from a heavenly body he cannot leave this earth and therefore he begins with geometry and with infinite patience measures his baseline not until he is sure of that does he begin as carefully to measure the angles of the lines which leave this earth from either end of his baseline on their way to the object in the sky therefore we begin our investigation of the mystery of sleep by selecting for our baseline its most fundamental fact as it appears in a question often put by a child where do we go to when we go to sleep this is a very natural question for a child because it easily recognizes that we are gone then its understanding has already grasped the central fact about sleep absence that being so we must now take our time in considering this first fact our baseline for subsequent proceedings in the first place something must be present in order that the other thing be absent from it and the present here is the living body not only complete in all its parts but also in its living attributes and functions 
not one of its component cells is changed or gone the blood circulates the same the secretions flow the same the lungs go on exchanging carbonic acid for oxygen and all the processes of nutrition are as active as ever but the completeness of that which is present only accentuates the disappearance of that which is absent whatever other questions may be raised the primary and certain truth is that in natural sleep the conscious personality in us takes its departure from the body without leaving a trace behind it may return gradually and partially as in dreams but that is then not sleep in true healthy sound sleep the body is as devoid as a bronze or stone statue of either consciousness or mind that it is still a warm living body does not alter the case because while a living body can be awakened and a statue cannot awakening is the opposite of sleep and hence throws no light whatever on what sleep itself is the marvel of sleep is lost upon us owing to the unfortunate peculiarity that our ability to wonder is soon abolished by mere repetition because the recurrence of sleep is as certain and regular as sunset itself it does not occur to us to wonder at it or to ask what it all means really to appreciate what a strange thing sleep is in a race of intelligent beings we may have recourse to our imagination and picture another world whose inhabitants are mentally just like ourselves but whose ordinary conscious life is continuous and sleep therefore wholly unknown to them now should a single one of their fellows happen to fall asleep in our fashion he would certainly fill them all with amazement if not with terror to their minds an individual who could virtually go out of existence for some hours and then return just as if nothing had happened would be about as uncanny and alarming an object as the apparition of an unmistakable ghost would be to us but the greatest perturbation of all which this sleeper would occasion would be among their philosophers because he would constitute a phenomenon which contradicted their whole science of the real with less difficulty than our own philosophers who always feel uneasy when sleep is mentioned their philosophers had long demonstrated that the one certainty of certainties among them was their own conscious selves that ego which is always there as with us every other existence is only relative to this first certainty which is based upon personal consciousness but this new sleeper among them would be a specimen of a being who can be alternately vividly conscious at one time and utterly non-conscious at another and whose ego therefore could both be and not be by turns to return now to our own earth and to our body of philosophers we may first allude to the theme which has long chiefly occupied their attention namely ontology or the science of being in their discussions on the nature of being two great terms are continually employed namely subject to denote that which thinks and object or that which is thought about the subject also feels and perceives 
while the object is that which is the occasion of feeling and of perceiving by the subject the longest debate has been on the relations of these two elements of our being to each other one school of philosophers maintain that they are absolutely distinct the subject being the central ego and the object being essentially the external non-ego the other school maintains that the two are really identical object being but a phase of subject meantime the appeal on both sides is exclusively to facts of consciousness the first school relies upon the immediate perception by the subject that the object for example a stone is no part of it never was and never can be the other school beginning with the illustrations of sound and of pain as things which have no objective but only subjective existence then goes on to demonstrate that everything exists only as a state of consciousness apart from a conscious mind nothing has any real existence in or of itself this was bishop berkeley's celebrated doctrine it may be remarked here that democritus of abdera circa 430 b c was the doctrinal ancestor of berkeley his teaching contains the germ of all subsequent speculations of the kind enunciated in his famous saying man lives plunged in a world of illusion and of deceptive forms which the vulgar take for reality to tell the truth we do not know anything the late professor clifford maintained a theory about mind and its relations to matter which to use his own words is not merely a speculation but is a result to which all the greater minds which have studied this question in the right way namely in clifford's way have gradually been approximating for a long time this theory is that mental phenomena and physical phenomena although apparently diverse are really identical this view though not in all its aspects the same yet approximates to the doctrine of hegel that there can be no existence possible of matter or of motion except as standing in relation to mind all we can say to this is that by the time a man who while looking at that interesting body the moon comes through philosophizing to believe that it is a special phase of himself because being an object it exists only in his consciousness he must then be intellectually drunk it is related of a certain german thinker that his cogitations led him into such a sea of doubts that he began to doubt his own existence at last his feet touched bottom on one unquestionable fact that is that he could not doubt that he doubted but unfortunately for this reassurance it also would go when he lay his head upon his pillow at night for in his sleep he would not know that he have ever doubted doubting is a fact of consciousness but so is every other fact which metaphysicians go by they all consist of mental processes in the waking state but in sleep all mental processes with everything pertaining to them apparently cease and so completely that all contrasts and distinctions belonging to conscious life equally disappear 
a philosopher and a simpleton, a wise man and a fool, and likewise an innocent child and a murderer, a saint and a criminal, are all alike when they are all fast asleep. Sleep, therefore, is a something which abolishes both the subject and the object of the metaphysician before his very eyes, and along with them every other thing that he has talked about, whether principles of thought or principles of ethics. This undoubted accompaniment of sleep, then, raises the question whether our baseline itself be correct or not. Does sleep testify to the absence of the conscious personality from the body, or rather to what is really quite different from absence, namely, to extinction of the personality? Instead of the child's question, where do we go when we go to sleep, the other question, also sometimes asked by a child, may be nearer the mark, where does the fire go when it goes out? We may then liken our conscious life to the light of a candle, which is periodically extinguished to prevent the candle, which is the analogue of the body, from being burned up too fast. Every time this candle is lit, it gives off its light at the expense of the body, so that in time the candle itself is used up, and after a few fitful flashes in its socket, it ends in final darkness. Starting, therefore, with extinction as our base, we will follow our lines of inference therefrom to note whether they will converge to some definite conclusion. At one end of our baseline we have the fact, which is doubtless true, that sleep is due to a physical bodily necessity or condition. Moreover, we have more than one example of purely physical conditions, including the chief element in sleep, namely, unconsciousness, such as in apoplexy, or from a blow on the head, or from brain poisoning, as by chloroform, and though these states differ in many particulars from natural sleep, yet they suffice to show that the link between consciousness and the brain is a physical one, or else physical agents would not sever it. The inference, therefore, seems probable that as physical conditions of the brain extinguish consciousness, so physical conditions there create it. But unfortunately, this line of inference based upon extinction cannot be made to pass in the neighbourhood of demonstrated facts. To begin with, it is not the whole body, but only a part of the body, namely the nervous system, which is connected with the conscious personality, and not the whole nervous system, but only the brain, and in turn not the whole brain, but only the one of the two hemispheres in which speech is located, which, when awake, either subjectively thinks or recognizes objects. We have gone all over the subject before, and need not waste any more words upon it. The brain itself neither makes a word nor forms an idea. All words and all knowledge are put in the brain and arranged there for use, like so many books on their brain shelves by the brain's librarian. Where he goes to when he locks this library up and leaves for the night, we do not know, but one thing is certain, that not one of its books made itself or put itself where it properly is. 
but the inferences drawn at the other end of this baseline are worse yet for going all astray extinction is extinction therefore after the shortest nap our whole conscious selves have to be made all anew the comparison to a relit candle is altogether too simple to fit the case for our being is infinitely more than a flame the surest realities of being cannot actively exist then be annihilated and then come into active existence again like passing flashes of light how much of our conscious life consists in memories and the use of memories every word we hear read or utter exists as memorized symbols in the cells of our speech centers and it took a long time to put them there a night's sleep certainly does not and cannot obliterate them nor wipe out anything else the brain has acquired we have gained in our years settled convictions strong motives and living sentiments all too deeply seated to come by day and go by night or ever approach extinction while we live it is these abiding elements in our conscious being which make us true persons to admit that all of them can be and not be between waking and sleeping would be the end of all reality if we are certain of anything it is that we are the old saying cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am is not to be disproved by brief lapses into unthinking sleep but this theory runs counter also to one of the most striking facts about personality namely continuity change is the great word descriptive of this strange life of ours as old age approaches memory can bring back picture after picture of our former selves in early childhood in youth and in each year thereafter with changes upon changes in everything except in one thing through them all whether taking place in us or about us we were never anybody else it was i who was a child and it is the same i who is now that i has never been other than what it is and certainly never yet extinct here the extinction theory of sleep leads us to absurdity as its conclusion or in other words to a mental nowhere let us therefore in our quest now turn and ask what physiology has to say on the subject that is eminently proper because in all matters connected with bodily life it is the province of physiology to occupy itself with the question what for all other details about structure or place are considered by the physiologist as simply contributing to solving this question what is the purpose achieved sleep is a great factor in human life about one-third of its allotted duration being spent in sleep but what is sleep for many persons may think that they can answer this question off-hand without any help from the physiologist after a hard day's work farmer and mechanic know that their fatigued muscles need rest another who has been working his brain for hours finds that his thoughts are growing dull and sleepy 
with another an exciting day ends in a sense of weariness in all his nerves those of the eye and of the ear especially therefore it is plain that muscles cannot be worked forever nor brain nor nerves be exercised unceasingly and hence that is what the rest of sleep is for but such an answer is none the less a mistake because part of it is true in fact the demonstration of what a particular mistake in this answer is will take us a long way toward recognizing what in truth is the real significance of sleep first as to the muscles sleep is needed by muscles not because they are muscles doing work muscular work as such does not tire muscles though they have to work uninterruptedly not for hours only but for years muscular work consists in pulling at something and then relaxing so as to pull again for this purpose all muscles which are attached to bones are composed of lines of muscle cells which contract in the direction of their attachments and by shortening the muscle produce the pull all such muscles under the microscope have just the same appearance are constructed alike and always perform just the same kind of work now the diaphragm is a great muscle and is both constructed and does its work just as any muscle in arm or leg does its work indeed it has to perform more muscular work than any muscle in the limbs ever does or could do but it would be disastrous if ever it got so tired by its work that it called for rest it is the same in the powerful array of the other chest and abdominal muscles which carry on our respiration for the combined muscular work spent in breathing has been estimated as equal to raising five hundred pounds an inch with each deep inspiration so great is the work performed by these muscles that most of our power-making food is consumed in their unceasing exercise in all which fortunately none of them ever need sleep it has been erroneously supposed that these muscles get all the rest in breathing which they need because they rhythmically rest between inspiration and expiration but let any one try to move his arms up and down sawing wood twenty-four times a minute which is the pace of ordinary breathing while standing and he will find that his pauses between in that rhythmical process did not amount to any rest at all the conclusion from these physiological facts is important namely that it is something else beside their work and essentially different from it which tires and exhausts muscles to the degree sometimes of destroying them still more significant are the facts about nerve cells and the expenditure of their energy which is equivalent in its way to the expenditure of power by muscles in their work in contrast with the action of muscles which is visible and uniform the action of nerve cells and of their prolongations in nerve fibers is both invisible and extraordinarily multiform we can judge what their action is only by cutting the nerve fiber or excising the cell or by stimulating these with various irritants 
but the result of such experiments conveys the impression of power or of the transfer of energy in nervous tissue much more than any manifestations of the kind in muscular tissue take a powerful muscle and simply sever its motor nerve and the muscle hangs flaccid and paralyzed all that strong work in the muscle was elicited by a current of energy coming down that nerve so the whole powerful mechanism of the muscles of respiration would instantly and forever cease to work if a small nail were driven into the respiratory center in the medulla oblongata but the medulla has to regulate the beating heart as well and it sends its nerves to follow every secondary artery down to the smallest to regulate them all with a grip which they must ever obey these are examples of only a part of the work which the power centers in the medulla are constantly performing without cessation throughout life a moment's sleep by them would mean the sleep of death hence neither nerve cells nor nerve fibers as such need rest in their work and as with muscles it must be something other than their work which can fatigue them End of section 14